All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 33rd year of business and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi. We have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. As we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I turn it over to my brother, Jeff, to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down about 302 points, or nine-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500 last week was down about 50 points, or 1.2%. And the NASDAQ last week was down about 118 points, or 1%. Now, for the year-to-date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 9.5%. The S&P 500 year-to-date is down 13.8%. And the NASDAQ year-to-date is down 23.2%. Thank you, Jeff. Welcome. So, looks like we had another attack of the Fridays. This past another, week, another attack on the Fridays. But I, I do like something that Joe, right before we went into the show, Joe, you had written down some of the best quotes of the week from some some interesting folks. Yes, I got you, it. I got it right. I, I could paraphrase the entire week and, and essentially three quotes. One of the analysts for Bank of America: "No fun till the Fed's done." And another one that Jamie Dimon came out with at the beginning of the week, and remember the week before that, he he talked favorably favorably about the economy, and we had a pretty good week. We had a huge week last week. This week he talked about two sparrows in an economic hurricane, which obviously caused the market to go down on Friday. And I'm kind of going with you know music theme here and uh, some cliches. And then of course Elon Musk's uh, forecast on the economy was super bad, and I think that was like a movie, too, from what I can recall. So there's a lot of cliches and sayings and songs and anyways. Well, I, I, I want to know. Our listeners, I, I, Jamie Dimon is the CEO of J.P. Morgan, Morgan. Morgan, and Elon Musk is the CEO of Tesla. Tesla. But I, I've got to ask this question. With, with Jamie Dimon doing an about-face, I mean, flip-flopping, going from things are – Looking better, not as bad as everyone thinks. To the next week, it's it's this doom and gloom. I'm wondering if JP's portfolio has got some short positions in, and they were getting hurt 
that week where he was talking favorably and the analysts and the portfolio manager says, Hey, Jamie, can you, can you do us a solid? Can you talk the market down to help our portfolio positions? I'm sure that never takes place on wall street. Does it guys? I don't know so much with bank CEOs, certainly uh, with uh, uh, chief investment officers of hedge funds. I would, I would, I would be more inclined to believe they would do something like that to try to move the markets favorably, however their portfolios were positioned. I'm not sure I would necessarily expect that from the CEO of, of, a, of a bank, but I like the, the one, the first one that you read. Um, no fun till the Fed's done. No fun, yeah. Well, I could also throw, throw a few more out there. I can't tell you who they're, the person they're actually attributed to, uh, but uh, three steps and a stumble, which is meaning three Fed rate raises and the market should stumble. And uh, I think it was a famous baseball player. Uh, was it Yogi Berra? It's not over till it's over. That sounds like a, a Yogi Berra-ism for sure. Uh, amongst his many other ones that, that he's put out over the decades. But 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 here's the question as far as, no fun until the Fed is done. Does that include quantitative tightening? Because this past week was the beginning on June 1st of the Federal Reserve removing $47 billion in liquidity as their bond balance sheet starts to now roll off. Now, they're going to be doing three months in a row of $47 billion of roll-off. What that means is, for our listeners, the roll-off, was that the Federal Reserve has a bond portfolio. It's currently close to $9 trillion in assets. And so in order to add liquidity into the marketplace, they can buy bonds. And to keep the liquidity out there as their bonds mature, they receive their principal investment back, which would they would then reinvest in new bonds. That would keep the liquidity there at that level. For the roll-off, what they're doing is they're actually allowing the bonds to mature. They're getting their principal back and then they're not reinvesting it. And so the Federal Reserve having a $9 trillion balance sheet, I know that they're projecting they really want to get it down around between 6 to $7 trillion. So they're starting the roll-off at $47 billion for three months. So as we get into September, it's going to be ramped up to $95 billion. But if we're talking $95 billion of roll-off and they're trying to cut 2 to possibly $3 trillion in liquidity, now, of course, that's as I'm talking today. They can change at any time because Jeff has reminded us on previous shows that the Federal Reserve a year ago said they're not raising rates until 2023. So, of course, it's all subject to change. But if we're talking $95 billion when the quantitative tightening or the balance sheet roll-off is in full effect, it's going to take years for them to get to that 2 to $3 trillion worth of reduction. And so this whole saying that Joe just said, no fun until the Fed is done, does that include QT? Because if it includes quantitative tightening, then now we're talking, what, into 2024 until we can start having fun again? Because I can tell you, for any of our listeners, if we ask them if they've had fun this year, the answer is a resounding N-O, no. Unless well, they shorted the entire market. Well, that's true, unless they were shorting <laughs> the entire market. But but who, who, who we would, would never recommend, by the way. Yeah, we well, would never recommend that. I think I was pointing something out to you earlier this week, Kyle, when the Federal Reserve went through a its really last lengthy rate-raising cycle, which lasted from the end of June of 04 to the end of June of 06, 
where I believe the Fed raised interest rates by a quarter point each time uh, for almost two years, taking the Fed funds rate from 1% to over 5%. And interestingly enough, the markets were up during that time. The markets actually were up between 2004, 2006, even though the Fed raised interest rates 14 times at a quarter percent each. Now, are they going to raise the the Fed funds rate 14 times, a half percent each over the next two years? Probably not. Do I think the markets are going to have the same performance result? I don't think so. When we come back, I'll go a little bit further. Okay, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about Money Wise, guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise, guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments, and don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in to this weekend's Money Wise program, just continuing our recap of the happenings from Wall Street from last week, had another attack of the Fridays with the Dow down 9 tenths of 1%, S&P down 1.2%, the NASDAQ down a percent. And I know, Jeff, before we went to break, you were giving some kind of historical statistics, and you were talking about there was a period of time back between 2005, 2006, where the Fed had raised interest rates a total of 14 times over that two-year time period at about a quarter point each. Yes. And I know you wanted to continue on that point. So it was June of 2004 to June of 2006. Well, when they started raising interest rates, now remember we started at a 1% Fed funds in, say, June of 2004. Well, the year-over-year CPI number was 3.3. That's a consumer price index. That was, that was a year-over-year, the 12-month consumer price index number. Now, for the next two years, it sta- the, the CPI number stayed pretty steady. It got up to 4.7% about a, a little over a year later in late 2005. And then by the time the Fed stopped that rate-raising cycle, in the middle of 2006, the CPI number was 4.3%. So it went from 3.3 to 4.3 in those two years, and the Fed raised rates 14 times, quarter percent each time. And the markets did about 7.5, as measured by the S&P 500, about 7.5% compounded during those two years. Well, I believe that the Fed started raising rates this year in March, if my memory serves me correctly. Yes, And the the year-over-year CPI number in March of this year was 8.5%. So that's a totally different animal than what we had in 2004 and 2004 when the Fed started that lengthy rate-raising cycle. Plus, we're starting at zero in March. We started at zero versus in 2004 where we started at a 1% Fed funds rate. So... The bottom line for me, and the only the only number that makes any real difference at all, is C, is CPI. 
and we're getting another CPI number next Friday. That's really the only economic news we're getting next week is CPI on Friday. And the the estimate is it's not really – it's still going to have an eight handle, meaning it's going to be eight point something is what the estimates that I've been seeing are showing. Well, I don't think the market's going to react very favorably to that. And maybe this week that just passed was a, a preview of coming attractions in the following week. Now, we had – how many was it? Seven, eight weeks in a row the Dow was down, and then we had that big up week two weeks ago. And then now we've gone back the other way. We just basically had this flattish type week. Yeah, it was down 1%, a flattish type week. We've given back a little bit of those gains. Typical in a bear market. Now, do I think we're going to test the lows next week? Well, we'd have to do it all on Friday. Because we're going to have to wait for the news until Friday. And the markets may just mark time Monday through Thursday because there's really nothing in terms of economic news. And I didn't even, I didn't even check any Fed speakers. But Well, they're, they're, they're coming out. <laughs> there's no telling if it's a voting governor that's going to be speaking or a non-voting governor. I mean, it seems like every week we've got three to four uh, voting Fed governors or non-voting Fed governors coming out and giving interviews. You know, well, whether it's Larry Brainerd, who is the vice chair of the Federal Reserve, who's typically known as the most dovish person on the board, uh, again, speaking a little bit more to, in, in a hawkish tone. Go ahead, Joe. No, I'm just going to say a majority of the Fed governors, they are all speaking in a hawkish tone, even Brainerd. So from a unanimous, unanimous – I can't even say it. Uh, the unanimous. Name, unanimous standpoint, yes. It seems like all the Fed governors – essentially are, are relatively hawkish on rates, at least 50 basis points in the next two months. And then the, the question is, are they going to pause? Are they going to pivot? Are, I, I don't foresee that. Um, then I believe we might have another one in September. Is that right? August, they take a break, and then we'd have another one in September. Well, August, right? they have the, the August, they have their Jackson Hole meeting yeah. typically towards the end of the month. But – when Jeff's talking about the consumer price index, that includes volatile food and fuel, which the Federal Reserve does not use the CPI when it comes to their interest rate uh, decisions. They use the core PCE, and we discussed the core PCE on last weekend's show where we have seen the core PCE come down since January of this year, and it now stands at 4.91%, and the historic long-term PCE level is 3.21%. So I, well, the PCE is, is, tied in, is tied in with the CPI. So if I'd have had the statistics for the PCE going back to 1922, we'd have talked about them, and I guarantee you those whatever the core PCE is, was in, in June of 2004, it was substantially less than it would have been in March of 2022. Everything that's driving the markets, again, in my opinion, is all about this inflation number. As long as this inflation number is still running hotter than the, than the Federal Reserve wants it to run, then they're just going to keep raising interest rates. Now, maybe they'll stop raising them at 50 basis point clips and they'll go to 25 basis point clips or they'll start changing uh, how much how much they're letting their balance sheet run off via quantitative tightening uh, and increase that number. But they they are going to fight this battle. They are not going to lay down. They are not going to pause if the numbers haven't come down substantially. They are going to keep 
raising interest rates. And the other thing that happened this week, what else did we hear? We heard a couple of companies coming out talking about lowering their expectations. Now, they gave they gave some lame reasons, like Microsoft came out and said, well, we got currency translation issues. Basically, they're saying that because of the strength of the dollar, that's going to hurt their earnings somewhat. And they they came out and said, well, we're going to you know change our guidance well, a little and, bit. And, again, and the stock didn't control re- that. And the stock didn't really have much of a reaction to it. And then I think was it late on Friday or sometime on Friday was the Apple news that you mentioned, Joe. Well, Apple was talking about their app sales. That's uh, right. Forecast That's right. being less than they expected, and they were making an adjustment on that. So I think what you're seeing is some of these companies making adjustments midstream, preparing everybody for their second quarter earnings. So right. they're the real they have some cover to make those uh, to revise those estimations. Well, the real meat and potatoes of the revi- of of warnings should start to occur after you know after the Federal Reserve's meeting and the, the fifty basis points they're going to raise again. The last two weeks of a quarter are traditionally when companies come out and give their warnings for the second quarter. So, will we see some of those? Are they going to pull a target on us and not say anything and sideswipe us at the earnings announcement? And next thing you know, the stocks down twenty percent. Some companies may do that, but 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 Target got taken out the woodshed for margin compression. I understand, you know, but they, they didn't. There was no warning about the, good sales. That's right. true. There, there was no there, warning. There was, there was no warning, and, and maybe these companies are learning from some of the past mistakes that were made just in the last month or so of these companies not coming out and saying anything. Just like Elon Musk saying, you know, we're he's he's projecting a super bad economy, whatever that means, and that he's going to be reducing some headcount. I've heard of Coinbase rescinding some job offers that they've already put out. So some of these companies are starting to cut some headcount. But then the other question is, is Elon Musk starting to feel pressure from some other EV makers? As maybe he overhired a little too much, thinking that he was going to be the big big boy on the block and realizing that he's now going to start getting more competition from Ford, from GM. And obviously we know there's still issues with these computer chips and the, and the processors and things of that nature. But, you know, one thing I read this past week, we're starting to see uh, auto sales dramatically decrease. I'm talking double-digit sales numbers that we're starting to see decrease, even with the limited supply. So are we going to get to a situation where we finally get the processors and the chips to catch up, get the auto manufacturers, get the supply back rejuvenated, and now they don't have any buyers, and so now they're going to have to start cutting deals. Because I, I just made an anecdotal observation myself personally as a shopper just this past, you know, last week, getting some deals on some shorts from the Gap, where I was getting them for more than 50% off. More than 50% off. So, of course, I'll take that deal all day long. Who wouldn't? And so I think, again, it's going to be a company-by-company basis. This is why it's so critical to do that research and to dig deeper on each and each single individual company that you're currently invested in or you may be investing in it because they could potentially have their day in the barrel like Target had several weeks ago, or they could they – could, you know, do extremely well and have fantastic numbers and raise forward guidance and get rewarded for that. So 
as we always say on this program, you have to dig deeper. You can't just haphazardly throw money at stocks and hope and pray that they do well because hope is a bad four-letter word when it comes to Wall Street. So let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise, guys, will be back after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call at our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us at our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. All emails can be sent to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So we're in our third segment of the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, continuing our market recap. Again, inflation, inflation, inflation. And, Jeff, I just want to go back. You know, I totally agree with your point that the market is just so keenly focused in on inflation. And, of course, the Fed has very limited tools to fight inflation. They might need a screwdriver where they're using a hammer uh, to try to drive down inflation. But as we've talked on this program for a good part of this year, that what brought the inflationary situation that we find ourselves in now was primarily driven by the COVID pandemic and supply, you know, supply side shock and not as much as the demand side shock. So, you know, as we've gotten further and further away from COVID as China this past week has finally opened up, Shanghai is back open for business. And I'll tell you, if China wants to be the economic, they get their Starbucks now. They can get their Starbucks. Yeah, they, uh, yeah, I heard about. Oh, yeah. I, I heard. Of, I heard about that. They were excited about Starbucks opening back up, but getting China back online, and if they're wanting to be the economic superpower that they want to be, they're going. You know, that we might have to start seeing some more stimulus coming from China to their economy. Obviously, we can't trust their numbers as far as we could throw them, but that can definitely help alleviate some of the supply shock, which was a contributing factor to the inflation that all consumers are feeling today. Now, obviously, we've talked on this program that there's been some boneheaded decisions in the White House, particularly revolving around the petrochemical industry and causing the supply issues when it comes to oil. And obviously, the Ukraine-Russia situation isn't helping. And I don't see that abating anytime soon over in Russia and Ukraine. And we know from this past week that OPEC, who was talking before their meeting about picking up some of the slack that's being left off from Russia, yeah, they gave a little bit less. So it sounds like old Joe is going to have to fly over to Saudi Arabia and get on bent knee and kiss the ring to try to get some more oil supply from Saudi Arabia, or, or, or here's, a, here's a novel idea. How about we take away these stifling regulations that are keeping all of our oil producers here in the U.S. from drilling on the thousands of leases that they have, because I'm so sick and tired of hearing the White House talk about, oh, we've got all these thousands of leases, but nobody's drilling on them. Well, I wonder why. Maybe it's because they're dealing with an administration that hates the industry. You know, if I was an owner of an oil company, oil field company, drilling company, the last thing I'd be doing is spending millions of dollars of my company's money to drill a well with a very unfriendly White House. 
with regulations coming out of my ears. Oh, and he it, wonders why we have issues, why I paid $5 for a gallon of gas last Sunday. Well, if you think of it from an employer standpoint, and and you'd have to go out and you have to get people back into the oil field to work. That's going to take a tremendous amount of effort, a tremendous amount of capital, and then a year from now or two years from now, they're gone. They're going to have to go back look for look for other jobs. And you had a lot of high-skilled people in that field. So it, it, it's a huge challenge from a labor standpoint, not just investment capital, which labor would be something that you, that, that's part of investment capital, but it's, it's tough to get people to put, and, and, I, and I understand it. And anyways, go ahead, Kyle. Well, well I, well, I no, did no, want to no, say, I mean, go ahead, WTI, you know, WTI went out on Friday basically at the high of the year. Uh, that's West really, Texas really, Intermediate Crude. West Texas Intermediate Crude, $119 a barrel. You got to go all the way back to 2008, thereabouts, for WTI to be that high. That's not going to help the inflation number at all. Well, it's definitely not. It's not going to help CPI because CPI includes fuel, and it also includes food. So the Russia-Ukraine situation is definitely not helping CPI there. So, I mean, I wouldn't anticipate the CPI to be – like Jeff, like you said in the last segment, to not have an eight handle in front of it, meaning starting with an eight, um, I wouldn't be surprised to to see it just tick down slightly. But that higher food and fuel when it comes to the consumer price index, yeah, that that I'd say is part of the inflation that's going to be here to stay for a quite longer period of time. The only areas where I think inflation is going to be helped is China reopening up, getting the supply chains freer again and also becoming a more of an equilibrium as far as consumer spending because we are starting to see consumer dollars shifting more to services vacations hotels airline tickets which again are at also some all-time highs that again leads to the whole situation with the fuel but i'm just i'm just so i i hate to use the word dumbfounded because i should just expect this from the left is all of their talking points and how empty they are. And I'm thinking to myself, can these folks be this ignorant? I, I mean, are there, are there are the people that are on the economic team this inept in the White House? And it just baffles me that well, a, a student, a student in an economy 101 in college has more common sense and knowledge than Biden's entire economic team. Yes, Joe. Well, in, to, to Kyle's point, and the other numbers that came out this week, they were talking about job numbers. They were talking about wage inflation. And, and during the break, go ahead. Jeff has the numbers, and I wanted to tie in a story, a real story, about uh, uh, that ties into that. Jeff. So non-farm payrolls increased 390000 last month after a revised 436000 gain in April. The unemployment rate held steady at 3.6%, and the labor force participation rate crept a little bit higher, but it's still below pre-pandemic levels. Uh, the the 390,000 advance in jobs was a little higher than what was expected, but this is what Joe wants to talk about. Average hourly earnings. Now, average hourly earnings rose three-tenths of a percent in the previous month, and year-over-year year is up 5.2%. Now, that's down from the previous month's 5.5% year-over-year increase in hourly earnings. So a 
year-over-year increase in earnings is going to is is not going to overcome eight percent inflation. So, Joe, tell us. Hey, well, and I, I was uh, having a little bit of dinner and uh, maybe an adult beverage, and uh, earlier in the weekend, uh, a gentleman that I've known for a while, he's a waiter, and he's telling me he said I had to move and it was a pain in the butt moving. I said, "Why did you move?" Because, well. My rent was $1,300, and it went up to $1,900 a month. So if you look at, okay, he's getting a wage increase year over year at 5.2%, but over, a, what do we say the number was, like almost a 50%? It's, 40, it's a 46% increase in rent. So even if he got more than, because 5.2% is the average, so let's say, let's say even if he said got a 10% raise, that's not going to help offset a 46% right. increase and, in rent. And, and, you made. If you made fifty thousand dollars a year and your in, and your income went up ten percent, twice what the um, this average is, that would take you from fifty to fifty-five thousand. Only five thousand dollars, and the rent on this particular apartment would have gone up seventy-two hundred dollars over a one-year period. So your entire increase in pay would have been totally offset, and you'd still be two thousand dollars down if you stayed in that apartment. No wonder he had. He had to move someplace else. And he, he knows what we do, and occasionally he listens to the show. And I'm like, I don't know how to actually solve that problem for you where you're going to be able to. I mean, and here's the thing. If you want to go work two jobs, and I was listening to this on the, on the radio today, well, what are you going to have to do? You're going to go to one job that you actually have to drive to another job. What's that going to cost? It's going to cost more money in the form of gas. So I, I know one way to help. Vote Republican in the next election. I, I, that, that's, gonna, that's 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 a real simple fix. Vote GOP, straight ticket, and that will definitely help. From a pure standpoint, we, the middle class and the lower and the and the lower middle class are are being impacted by this, and there's going to be there's going to be a piper to pay probably at the end of the year. Let's just say that. So something's got to change. Well, and, and, I, and I know in years past we've been more political on this program, and we've been trying to ride the, the fine line between the both parties. But in this situation, I, th- I think the writing is on the wall, is that w- when you vote personality over policies, this is the end effect. When you have, I don't even want to say children running this country, but the completely inept people running this country that are all about identity and identity politics over policies that are good for the you know for the average american family this is what we wind up getting poor energy policy you know we see what we're, we're we see what we're getting at the pumps when you push a lot of jobs overseas and and supply chains overseas and not keeping it here in the united states when you have a global pandemic we're seeing the fallout and the hangover effect from it from an inflationary standpoint and I'm not saying that if President Trump was still in the White House, that we wouldn't be feeling inflation. I don't think we'd be feeling it at this level. We definitely wouldn't have it on the energy side. I don't think we'd be seeing a conflict in Ukraine and Russia, that's for sure. So I think things would definitely be a lot better, uh, even though Trump didn't always have the best personality or the, or the most couth uh, approach. He was about policies, and he was about the American family and the American first agenda. And so that's something I think that we're going to have to get back to. And I can tell you this just, again, anecdotally, if anyone noticed what happened in Ontario this past week in the election, the Conservative Party murdered every other 
political party in Ontario and took control of their, I guess, what they consider their Senate or their House. So the Conservative Party just absolutely swept in Ontario. And it's no surprise with what's been taking place in Canada. So let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-275. 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, got a little political in the last segment. I had to remind Jeff during the commercial break that back when Dad was on the air full-time, I swear some of our shows were nothing but politics because politics does have and has an effect of the economy, obviously, and that is an in, in run into the stock market. And so I know we try to keep it purple as best we can, but when things are so blaring, blatantly obvious of, of what's taking place from a political standpoint and the lack of wise, sound policies of governing this country, we get this into effect. But I, like I said in the last segment, though, regardless, this pandemic has a hangover. The pandemic has a hangover effect when it comes to the economy and inflation. And, Joe, I know there was something you wanted to add Yes. I, what I think Kyle is talking about and what maybe all three of us can agree is a balanced common sense approach to running the country and the economy where you have a balance of EV and you have a balance of green. You have a balance of using fossil fuels. We're a balanced manager and we're going to talk about the portfolio in a little bit. But okay, I'll give you last week my wife was out of town and I got to use, I have a truck. All right. I have a truck. And, yes, it's a gas truck, but she has a hybrid. I actually enjoyed and understand the, the, the reason to want to have a hybrid or an EV. I'm like, why can't we have a balanced uh, society where, guess what, we have an EV in the driveway and we have a truck. And we use ba- in a balanced approach to energy and common sense approach to inflation um, and other things well, of that nature. But that's well, what it- and and I don't dis and I don't disagree with that point, Joe. But the thing is, we still have to have the infrastructure in place to be able to service these EVs, to be able to charge them up in other places other than home, and and have enough supply of that. And that's going to take years and years to build that infrastructure. Which you know, again, they should have been starting on this years and years ago. And I think we'll eventually get there, but you can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, we're just going straight this direction, forget everything else. It has to be a gradual move, just like in a portfolio. You know, when we have these corrective moves, you know, the first time you have a 2 or 3% correction in the market, you don't completely wipe out your portfolio on the stock side. You know, you gradually start taking profits and reduce positions in case this this two or three percent pullbacks turns into a correction or the correction turns into a, a bear market or then a prolonged bear market. It's all about proper steps and a proper balance, which I agree with. Is there something you right. want to add, Jeff? Yes, there is something I'd like to add. 
I was expecting politics. That. Politics at this point uh, is there isn't anything that they can do to help us. They can, there's only the only things they can do is hurt us. This administration. That's all I'm going to say. The markets right now are not really being driven by politics. It's being driven by the Fed. It's being driven by expectations for interest rate policy. It's being driven by we've got to get the inflation numbers down. And history has shown, despite everything that you said, Kyle, about issues with the supply chain and they're going to be correcting and China's coming back to work, history has shown that it takes time to solve inflation this high. There isn't any history of inflation being this high getting solved quickly. It takes time. And so we this zero interest rate policy that we've had for 14 years, the chickens are coming home to roost. And we've been warning about this for years, that eventually this was going to come to pass, that the piper was going to have to be paid. Now, am I saying we're going down 75% in the next three months? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is, is that we're going to have an extended period of time where the markets do nothing, where the markets go up 6% one week and go down 5% the next three weeks. How the, the cha-cha? The cha-cha. The cha-cha. Okay. We're, we're, we've got cha-cha time, and cha-cha time is difficult. Cha-cha time requires patience. But I don't think all the bad news is in the market. I think we still have – we're going to be hearing from the companies – more companies talking about reducing hiring or actually starting to talk about real layoffs. They're going to have to start talking about their margins being compressed because they just can't not pass on all these cost increases to customers. And that's going to have an effect on stocks. I don't think it's all prices. Remember the, the, the S&P is only down 14% year to date. We were, we were down 20% for a microsecond and then the markets bounced back. We've only had two interest rate increases, gentlemen, two, a quarter uh, point yes. and 50 basis point. That's it. And we just started QT. We just started it. And I saw that the 10-year treasury was up this week. We we're almost pushing 3% again. We've got a long way to go, a long way to go. So let's talk about what we've done in the portfolio because we didn't talk really much about that last week. we got a couple of minutes left. I'm not well, sure if yeah, – go ahead, Kyle. What well, I was, just gonna make, I was just going to make one point. Yes, history definitely has relevance for a potential predictor of the current and future when it comes to the market. But in every past recession, every past higher inflation, higher interest rate environment, all had different causes and effects. And so it doesn't matter the cause and effect. It's here. None of us in this room and the majority of the people that have been talking on TV have not had to manage in an, in an inflation environment such as we have here. No, that's true. No, no, no. I, 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 I I totally agree with you, but one of the main contributing factors to inflation with no one, I mean, the last time we had a global pandemic was in the early 1900s. So again, how long it's going to take, the timing, the end effect of everything when it's all said and done, we don't exactly know. We can use history as a guide, but it doesn't mean that it's set in stone. That's all I'm saying. Okay. We got a handful of seconds left. The things that we have done here in the last few weeks are we've raised 
our exposure to short, long maturity interest rates, meaning we're betting higher interest rates and we're going to profit from them. And the second thing that we've done is we've taken some of our excess cash and we've started buying U.S. Treasury bills, short maturity U.S. Treasury bills. The first one we bought was only for 90 days. To just, and we're just planning on going to roll that for extra income in the portfolio. We haven't bought any additional stocks. We haven't sold any additional stocks, at least here in the last two or three weeks. No, and we're still that. hovering in, in a moderate well, allocation, 40-60, 40% stock, 60% right. fixed income and cash. And so that's where we're comfortable right now and continuing to circle the field when it comes to putting any more money at work. I think with a lot of other long-term asset managers across this country, we're all kind of in the same plane circling the field. And we would recommend summer's going to be choppy. Um, being patient, as Jeff said, I think would be kind of the, the word of the week is just continued patience. So with that, we're coming up to the top of the hour break, so we'll take the break, go into the news. When we come back, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise, guys, will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We've got my father, John, my brother, Jeff, and I'm your host, Kyle Davidson. We are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at one 800 275 2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So for the second hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program, um, as we normally use the second hour to go into investor education, you know, there was a, a topic and a subject matter that uh, that I've wanted to to talk about for some time, and I've been thinking about it all week, and it, and it really talks about uh, investors' behavior and improving investors behavior and so doing some research and really where this spur you know really where i got the spark to want to look into this and research it is several weeks ago uh... dalbar released a study and they release a study on an annual basis talking about investor behavior and their typical rates of return um, and and what their experience has been as managing money of their on their own and and from time to time when i meet with prospective clients and current clients we talk about investor psychology and how investor psychology can do a lot of damage to portfolios so in my research i actually ran across a presentation that was put together by the mutual fund family munder i want to give them the credit for for putting this presentation together which i thought was just fantastic presentation that i wanted to pass along to our listeners because it's got a lot of good food for thought but it also includes some of these dalbar statistics about investor psychology and the rates of return that individual investors have been achieving 
over a very long period of time, in fact, a 20-year time period, and how critical it is to have the connection with an investment professional to assist them, but also how to not allow humans, the, your human psyche become a roadblock to investing for your future. So looking at this presentation, you know, historic, historic invested investment behavior really threatens the ability to accomplish obje- objectives and achieve re- and achieve returns. The result is, is that investors are not going to reach their goals, whether it be retirement, saving for higher education, what have you. Investment returns may be far more dependent on investment behavior than market performance. And so investors who hold their investments typically are going to earn a higher return over time than those who attempt to time the market. And there's an old saying that that I use is it's about time in the market and not timing. So looking at emotional decisions, you know, these emotional decisions are often based on biases and not objective analysis. So potential investor problems that folks run into is identifying, first they're looking and trying to identify trends that don't exist in the marketplace. Uh, They also overweight information in the press. That brings up the example that we've talked about for many years of the client that came in to our office in 2008 and wanted us to liquidate his accounts because Glenn Beck told him that he needed to liquidate all of his investments. That's That's a particularly egregious example of someone overweighing information from someone in the press that has absolutely no investment experience whatsoever. And as a matter of fact, has a bias towards promoting a investment philosophy that enriches their advertisers, which in turn enriches the person that is delivering the message i.e. all the gold ads that you hear on shows like Glenn Beck or uh, really the conservative side of the aisle. I'm trying to think of some of those other guys. Glenn Beck, uh, Sean Hannity. Hannity. You you listen to these shows, every one of them has got a gold ad on. I think Limbaugh, as at one time, may still, I haven't listened to Limbaugh in so long, runs gold ads. Mm-hmm. And and you know and again we talk about on the show all the time about overweighting the information from the press because again this twenty four hour news cycle we feel is doing a lot more damage to the investor psyche than if they just turned it off and tune it out a little bit more or if they do continue to listen to it to take things with a little bit of a grain of salt and realize that the information is going to be coming to them with a certain bent to it depending upon who's the person that's providing the information. So, you know, something else talking about emotional decisions and, and, and decisions based on bias and not objective analysis. You know, a lot of investors, I mean, investors giving greater weight to the equivalent amount of gains and losses. And really it comes down to, and, and I ask this question all the time of prospective clients or even current clients, is remembering losses more than gains. And that's one thing that, that in particular really holds investors back is is always having i mean losses from 2000 losses from 2008 still being so fresh in the front of their mind 
um, that's holding them back from making decisions to get involved with the stock market. You know, something else from an emotional decision standpoint is overestimating their own ability to manage their wealth. And I know with a lot of the self-help books out there, with a lot of the blogs and a lot of the websites, I think there's a false sense of security that can be built into an investor's mindset saying, you know what, I can do this on my own and I can do better doing this part-time on my own. And I can tell you, you know, with 70-plus years of combined experience sitting in the studio, we can tell you that you cannot manage money part-time and be successful over the long term. It's just cannot happen. It will not happen because things move so much quicker in this day and age. And then finally, you know, this all can lead to repeatedly making the same mistakes when you have these biases and you don't take an objective analysis when it comes to investing. So let's talk about the identifying of trends or patterns where none exist. You know, one thing that in individual investors do all the time is chasing the hot dots or basically chasing the hot stock or chasing the hot investment du jour for many years. Hot asset class. Hot asset class. For many years, it's been what? Precious metals. It's been all about gold. The late 90s was internet stocks. Uh, and then, but gold here, especially this century, uh, or really precious metals in general, had been one of the hottest areas. And then, you know, here uh, lately, in the last uh, three, four years, it's been social media. Uh, we've got the Amazons of the world, the Teslas of the world, mm-hmm. uh, th- that have been certainly being chased uh, by, by investors and bidding them up quite a bit. They've had co- they've had a, a pretty uh, Good correction here in the last few months, which I think has contributed to the, the, this market uh, kind of so not experiencing the kind of gains that we thought that that should have here in the first four months of the year. And and before we go to the commercial break, another issue that investors run into is the gambler's fallacy, believing that one can predict when trends will reverse themselves and feeling that they're a, a good timer of knowing when to pull the trigger. So we're going to pause right there, take another commercial break. When we come back, we'll be continuing improving investment behavior, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the MoneyWise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So talking about improving investor behavior, going through a presentation, talking about investor psychology, before we went to commercial break, we were talking about a lot of issues that investors run into, in particular those that are that are managing their own assets. And one one big issue that investors run into is chasing the hot dots or basically chasing the stock du jour or the sector du jour. Uh, we also talked about the gambler's fallacy, believing that one can predict trends are going to – being able to identify and predict when trends are going to reverse themselves – uh, another issue that that individual investors run into is focusing on investments doing well, but ignoring those investments that are not doing well in their portfolio. And I've run into this quite often when I do portfolio reviews and analysis, 
when I, I talk to prospective clients that are very happy about being in a position that pays a 10, 12, 13% dividend yield, and they're completely honed and focused in on the fact that they're giving a 12 to 13% dividend yield, and they're not realizing that they've lost 50% or 75% of their original investment, of their principal, because the value of the stock has just plummeted, but they were dazzled by just the yield. So let's talk about uh, Dalbar. Now, Dalbar is a company that was gathering a lot of investor data. Uh, they've been doing this for years and years and years. They just came out with a report that has information through 2013. And so what Dalbar found in their survey is that clients are motivated by two main emotions, and we've talked about them on this show for years and years and years. The two emotions are fear and greed. They're not motivated by sound investment practice. Investment returns are typic typically increase when there is a disciplined behavior. And, I mean, that's one thing that we've preached on the Money Wise program going back to 2005. It's about having a very strict philosophy, as we do here at Davidson Capital Management, as a balanced manager. A, a disciplined behavior has many different aspects. That's right. you know, one of those, and I think one of the most important parts of being disciplined is especially in a retirement account is participating in your 401k contributing as as much as you can if you can contribute the maximum amount to your 401k that obviously that's going to give you the the highest probability of reaching your investment goals in retirement contributing that money every single month and investing on a consistent basis time and time again and i've got dozens of examples of clients that are in identical investments over long periods of time and the ones that are contributing to their accounts on a monthly bi-weekly basis are outperforming those clients that don't contribute anything at all with identical investments identical allocations because it gives us the the investment manager the ability to to buy could always be in the market buying securities maybe you know like right now we've had opportunities to buy some of these funds at lower prices because the markets have been down mm -hmm. and by dollar cost averaging all the time and having the discipline to contrib contributing to your retirement and even if you're not contribute if you if you've maxed out your 401k and you still have money that's left over to to put into some sort of retirement account, get a, get a tax, get a, just a, a regular brokerage account, start contributing consistently to that one too, and investing consistently in, in that in that type of account. Over the long period, it is going to pay tremendous dividends. That's right. So, as you said, Jeff, disciplined behavior could mean investment philosophy and strategy. It could mean paying yourself first and participating and saving for your nest egg. Now, the Dalbar study also uh, went and calculated the guest right ratio. And what the guest right ratio is is the percentage of time the average equity investor correctly guessed the direction of the market over a 20-year period ending December 31st of 2012 was 63%. So a little bit more than half. Now, granted, how do they gather this data? I have no idea. How I'm they not sure. This. I mean, again, they have some type of matrix and process they go through to gather this data. 
the bottom line is investors are driven to do the wrong thing by the psychological factors that overtake their rational decision making. And that's what they that's again what what Dalbar is finding in their studies. And so as we get further into this Dalbar study, we look at uh, investors are driven to do the wrong thing by psychological factors that overtake rational decision making. And so they've actually listed a number of psychological factors that every investor has when they're going through their decision making process. And so this kind of going through all of these that are presented by Dalbar. The first one is we have loss aversion. And this is when an investor is expecting to find high returns with low risk. And I think that's any utopian dream of any investor is being able to get a high rate of return with little to no well, risk. Well, isn't this in kind of a, a selling or a attempted selling point for equity index annuities? Oh, brother, did you hit that one right on the head? You're absolutely right. I mean... They use this psych. I mean, again, marketing firms are looking at psychological factors that drive investors' decision making, and they're putting it into their presentations. And like you said, this loss aversion, all the upside, none of the downside, every, throwing the guaranteed word right. out there is what it's. We're psychologically wired to be attracted to those kinds of pitches. And so this loss aversion causes the investor to search for investments that either don't exist and results in either taking no action or later discovering that the selected investment fails to meet their expectations, a la equity indexed annuities. And, and let's give an example. Recently, you, we, we'd, we've seen all sorts of equity indexed annuities over the years. Yes. And I can tell you that our typical experience for an investor that has held an equity indexed annuity, say, over at least a five-year time period, that they typically return about a third of what you would have received had you just put the money into an S&P 500 index fund. Oh, if you're just talking straight S&P, it's even, it's even less than a third, Jeff. It's less than a third. I did a comparison on a most recent prospective client of our moderate allocation, our middle-of-the-road more conservative allocation model that we use with more retirees or pending retirees at Davidson Capital Management, and their returns were a third or worse compared to our returns in a balanced allocation. So if you're talking 100% stock... So, so what we mean by a third or worse, like for five years, the the moderate allocation might have returned 65% total return mm -hmm. over a five-year period. Net of fees and expenses. Net of all fees, all expenses. And an, an equity index annuity might have returned uh, 20%. Or less. Yeah. Total return. Total return. And the, re and the difference between the two is... Well, that 40% is going to the insurance company. So, you know, talking about these psychological factors, again, we talked about loss aversion. Another one is narrow framing, and that's when you make decisions without considering all the implications. The result is a quick decision-making with the consequences that facts are uncovered after inappropriate investments are made. So you make a quick decision, and then you uncover some more facts after the fact that you made that decision and you're like, uh-oh. This fits very well with that example I just used about that the client that came in and said, liquidate my portfolio because Glenn Beck said to. 
And then what? One week later, two weeks later, Glenn Beck went on on air and said, "Hey, I'm I, a schlub. I, I I said this on my show here recently, but don't listen to me because I don't know anything about investments. So the the inappropriate investment that was made was pulling the investments. That's that right. was the inappropriate investment was taking everything out and putting it into cash. That's right. So here's another psychological factor that affects investors and their decision making is anchoring. Now, anchoring is a very powerful communication method but can mislead investors unless it is used with caution. So investors can be misled about the stability of an investment if analogies are used to represent stability and analogies of growth can also lead to unrealistic beliefs and expectations again leads back to indexed annuities when i read this i just think of sales pitches that are more prevalent in the marketplace and even on different radio shows across the state and again using now this psychological effect of anchoring you know, presenting and misleading investors with the stability and the potential performance of this and, product. And, and we've been mentioning equity index annuities, for, for example, but there are other examples such as private placement, REITs. That's right. You know, they're sold based on their yield, but mm-hmm. we kind of gloss over the fact that how illiquid they are and how the, the value of the security could go down and how uh, those, those, t- those aspects of the investment are not discussed. But the focus is all on the yield. That's right, and, and not and not you know can I get my money out if I need to liquidate? How fast can I get a hold of my money? And what is going to be the underlying value of my principal investment? Kind of going back to that, I'm getting a ten percent yield, but I've lost fifty percent of my principal investment. Well, how is that beneficial to your portfolio? Well, we're coming to the bottom of the hour, so we're going to take the break. When we come back, we'll be continuing improving investor behavior and we'll do that after this you're listening to money wise with davidson capital management we'll be back after the break welcome back you're listening to money wise with davidson capital management if you'd like to learn more about the money wise guys you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on monday you can reach us in our local corpus christi office at 906 zero zero seven zero or toll free at one eight hundred two seven five two one six two and if you'd like to send us an email you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com so continuing our presentation in the second hour of improving investor behavior and and again going into uh, psychological factors that dalbar who is a a financial industry information gathering company that does a lot of surveys you know, I wanted to do something talking about the psychological factors and psychological effects that individual investors have uh, or, or how the psychological mindsets can, can hurt investors' portfolios over the long term. And so we were going through the different psychological factors that have this effect. We've talked about loss aversion and narrow framing and anchoring. But we talk about next is mental mental accounting, and that's when you take undue risk in one area and avoid rational risk in others. And I would say the best example, Jeff, in this area would be in precious metals. That would be that would be one area. I could I would also say that in the, to us in this market environment, taking risk in long maturity fixed income securities. That's right. And avoiding 
the the quote unquote risk that is inherent in, in investing in stocks to us, and this may seem odd to some people listening to the show, is we believe there's more risk in owning long maturity fixed income securities, whether they be municipal, government, corporate, than there is in owning the equivalent stocks of the same companies. We see more risk in owning a 30-year Exxon bond than we do maybe owning Exxon stock or AT&T or Verizon or hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other companies. So even though you're talking about gold in particular, because we've seen a lot of uh, many clients that have, that have had large positions in gold, but I could also say the same thing for cash. You know, just plain yeah. old straight cash. They're, the risk that they're take, uh, investors are taking by having large amounts of cash in their portfolios is they're not getting any growth whatsoever. So, so mental accounting can be as damaging to returns as any other psychological factor, since investors can be misled into inappropriate investments. Uh, another psychological factor that can affect your portfolio. Now, this is interesting, diversification. Now, in diversification, you're obviously seeking to reduce risk, but simply using different sources. Now, it's extremely valuable investment strategy, but can also be misused to create a false sense of protection that results in potential return-killing action. And I think the best example of this, Dad, is you talk about Jim Cramer when people call up and say, am I diversified? Yes. And they have three or four stocks. Five. Yeah, five stocks saying, am I diversified? And Kramer's saying, well, you're in this industry, you're in that industry. Yeah, you're diversified. So you have your entire portfolio in five stocks. That is not, in our opinion, diversification. Something else where diversification saying, yeah, I'm diversified. What if you owned a bunch of different companies in the same industry? And I hate to quit picking on gold, but gold miners, for instance, I have reviewed a portfolio this year that had a ton of different gold miners and and different precious metal miners, and guess what? They feel that they're diversified, but they're concentrated in one industrial arena. And so that's, again, when we talk about diversification, we're talking stocks, bonds, large cap, mid cap, small cap, international bonds, domestic bonds, short maturity bonds, cash, cash. That's diversification. It's not five stocks of five different industrial companies and that's it. Or having 15 companies in one industrial sector, that's not diversification. So be very, very careful and understand what true diversification means. Uh, Another psychological factor, according to Dalbar, and this is a classic, herding. Copying the behavior of others, even in the face of unfavorable outcomes. Investors that go along with the crowd, simply because there is a crowd, tend to avoid catastrophic errors, but seldom achieve above-average results. High returns are not achieved by herding. And, I mean, again, that herd mentality, I mean, it has been reported in so many different publications how... You know, again, long-term success. I mean, even to thinking more of a contra- you know, being more of a contrarian, as opposed to following the herd. Another psychological factor is regret. You know, treating errors of commission, which basically means decisions that you have made, 
you're treating them more seriously than errors of omission or a decision that you should have made. That basically means being extremely hard on yourself for deciding to buy this stock or this mutual fund as opposed to something else. And investors who who fear decision-making lose their upside potential through inaction or reversal. Inaction can prevent losses caused by poor decisions but is unlikely to produce higher potential returns. So again, inaction. You don't want to have inaction. Another psychological effect, media response. Before you go into that, yeah. I think the inaction kind of ties in with, with folks overestimating their own ability to manage their their wealth. That's right. Because they get too busy. Mm-hmm. And when you get too busy you, you you and you run out of time or you're too tired, you got other responsibilities then you can't you cannot take the you can't set aside enough time to really look at your portfolio understand what's going on and take action when action needs to be taken that's right and so here's another one that again goes along with the media media response it's a tendency it's another psychological effect it's a tendency to react to news without reasonable examination Going back to that Glenn Beck example, familiar media sources have become less reliable as they compete with newer, faster, and low-cost outlets. At the same time, new media outlets seldom have very thorough authentication. The question of reliability rises, raise, excuse me, raises the concern about reacting to news. So, again, that media response, and we've talked about that ad nauseum on this program. And then, finally, psychological factor that holds back and affects investors' portfolios over the long term is optimism. Now, Dad, I know we've used on this program, what's the bad four-letter word? Hope. Hope. The belief that good things happen to me and bad things happen to others. Optimistic investors hold on to investments after it becomes evident that losses are not likely to be recovered. Holding on to poor investments is yet another way psychological factors can reduce potential returns. Hope is a bad four-letter word. So with all this said, let's talk about the performance of the average equity investor. And this is a 20-year statistic, and this is through 12-31-2013. According to Dalbar, the average equity investor's return for 20 years annualized is 5.02%. Now, here's the tough pill to swallow. The S&P 500 index, same time period, up 9.22%, almost double what the individual average equity investor has realized in their portfolio for a 20-year time period because of the psychological factors that we just went over. I mean, I think that speaks volumes. I'd be curious, and I know you didn't do this, I'd be curious to know what a a moderate allocation portfolio had done during that time period. I know it's going to be close to that. I mean, when we're talking about the S&P 500, we're talking about a 100% stock portfolio, which is not something that we would recommend to any of our listeners to put 100% of their investments in stock. The optimum rate of return for us lies somewhere between these two numbers. but Because you know, 5% is very low. You know, Most people plugged into their, their investment 
projections for the future when they were when they're trying to figure out how much money they needed for retirement and and they and they used a particular rate of return in their investment portfolio. Uh, I don't think anybody was using five percent. Well, a twenty-year bond twenty years ago would have yielded more than five percent. Mm-hmm. Which means if you just bought a twenty-year bond twenty years ago and held it for the twenty years, you would have done better than the average investor from the study. I, I think the average one hundred percent in stock. Yeah, the average investor, by and large, I, I would say, sold sells out at the bottom and is slow to get back in again. Well, you know, I I think again, Jeff, when you when you allow your emotions to dictate your buys and sells, I mean, I think emotion. And along with these psychological factors that we went into, but emotion, your emotion, your emotional attachment to your assets and your nest egg, again, I, I think is what's causing so many investors to make these bad decisions. And one huge advantage of having a professional money management team like a Davidson Capital Management, an RIA that has discretionary control, is they help separate that emotion from your nest egg because you're relying on their expertise and their experience of being in the trenches of managing assets to make those decisions for you. You're you're separating your site those psychological factors from your assets because they're out of your control. And by taking those assets out of your control, that's eliminating is it's eliminating a lot more emotion. And it becomes a lot more difficult for you to try to pull the wrong trigger on making a decision in your portfolio. You know, and, you know, again, an old saying that investors would have, I mean, here's something an investor would say to themselves, you know, a stock's historic high was $50, but then it declines rapidly. The next thought in an investor's mind is, well, once my stock gets back to 50 I'll sell. And that is hope, hope. Okay, well, we're going to take our last commercial break, so we're going to take the break, come back. We'll be wrapping up this and proving investor behavior. After we come back from break, you're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906 zero zero seven zero or toll free at one eight hundred two seven five two one six two and if you'd like to send us an email you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com so we've been talking this whole hour about improving investor behavior and as dad said the commercial break we've been talking about all the bad things investors have been doing and i promise you we're getting ready to get to how to improve investor behavior but before we get there i want to talk about Again, the most common and potentially most damaging behavior that investors can have in their portfolio. Number one is an over-concentration in a particular position, and it can lead to unwarranted risk. So again, owning too much gold, owning too much in one particular industrial sector. Too much fixed income. Too much fixed income. Too much cash. That's right. It's important to understand that the market does not generally reward those who take risk that can be diversified away. So the reason why, again, we maintain a balanced philosophy of Davidson Capital Management we've had for the past quarter century and for the next quarter century, we'll continue to have that balanced allocation. Remember that the market is not going to reward those non-diversified huge risks that you take in concentrating in your portfolio in one particular area. 
And also you have to remember, investors are not adequately rewarded for the additional risk that they're assuming. You know, failure to diversify a portfolio, you know, if a portfolio is not diversified enough, the potential losses may be greater during market downfalls and macroeconomic-driven events. So, again, this is why it's key to have diversification, have a balanced allocation, and, again, to have it actively managed. That's an absolute key. So how do we correct the behavior? You know, how do investors correct the behavior? Well, first and foremost is having an asset allocation, an initial asset allocation model and an ongoing asset allocation model, and an allocation model that is rebalanced. It's not set it and forget it because we have seen that more times than we can count doing portfolio Set it and forget reviews. it is, is one of the, the most common asset allocation that is typically found with uh, a relationship that is more sales-oriented than it is active management-oriented, meaning the investor has a relationship with a full-service broker. Uh, they, they're not in the business of managing portfolios. They, they typically set an initial allocation and when, the, when the money's deposited, and they move on. When you buy an annuity, the initial asset allocation is set, and then that's it. You move on. So another way to correct investor behavior is setting and managing realistic expectations. If you're in a moderate allocation that's actively managed, you know, don't don't expect to be seeing a 15 to 20% annualized rate of return. That's just not realistic. I, I you know, today when we when I see prospective clients, the issue is not having the 15% plus, the, the double-digit type return expectations like we saw in the late 1990s. Mm-hmm. What it is is it's saying, oh, I want a 10% return, but I, don't want, but I only want 20% of my money in stocks. That's what we're seeing now. There, there, there's a there's a aversion for risk, but the, the, the return uh, expectations are reasonable by and large, but what isn't reasonable is the mix of assets to achieve that return. And that's where we have to say, now, you have to understand, if you want an 8%, 9% return, you're going to have to have 70% of your money in stocks given the current level of interest rates. And that's when the investors say, well, wait a second, I don't want to have 70% of my money in stocks. And so you have to bring down those expectations based on how much risk you're willing to take. So another way investors can help improve their returns and their behavior is maintaining true diversification. Not diversifying in multiple companies in one industrial sector. It's having mid-cap asset classes, large-cap asset classes, small-cap asset classes in a multitude of different industries. Foreign and domestic. Foreign and domestic. Fixed income and equity cash holdings, maintain that true diversification. Another great way to help improve returns, and Jeff, I know you said this earlier in the hour, dollar cost averaging into investments. If you have a 401k, if you have an IRA, if you have a taxable account, setting up monthly contributions, or if you're in a 401k, per pay period contributions. We know in 25 years of business, we've had clients that have been with us from the very beginning, and we can go back and look at the two different clients in the same allocation model, one client that's putting in money every month, another client that doesn't put another dollar in after their initial investment 
and the rates of return and the same allocation model is shocking. We've seen dollar cost averaging work with our own eyes, with our own client base. It's somewhere, it it's somewhere between 2 and 3% per year compounded, which doesn't sound like a lot, but get out of cal- that's a difference between a 7% compounded return and a 10% compounded return. And that adds up to serious money over the long period. Absolutely. Another way to help improve your returns, staying in the market. Now, again, it's time in, not timing. And if you have a proper allocation, you have an asset allocation model, you have true diversification in your dollar cost averaging, even when we have very choppy waters, you know, again, what we're trying to convey is the all-in, all-out strategy is not going to work because you're never going to be able to time it perfectly either way. So if you have an active, actively managed, balanced allocation over the long term, you will be rewarded. And finally, and I, I, God, this point is so good. I'm glad it's the last point. Investors need to stay focused on their goals that they have for their nest egg in their portfolio and not be focused on the markets and the day-to-day gyrations. And Stay focused on your long-term goals. I cannot say that any stronger or clearer. And that is so hard to do in an environment now where we are saturated in media. It is. Via it is. television and gazillion channels of TV the internet, whether it's on a computer sitting at our desk at work, a computer sitting on our desk at home, or our smartphones that are tied into CNN news feeds or whatever, or CNBC, CNBC news feeds, Market Watch. There's, you have to consume media uh, lightly. Well, go on a diet. <laughs> <laughs> the Atkins diet of. Uh, of uh, media consumption, too much of too much media can lead to being paralyzed making decisions. And we've learned from this Dalbar study of psychological effects on investing and what creates poor investment returns is the lack of being able to make a decision because you're being paralyzed by fear. So, Dad, I'm glad we kept you awake during this presentation, just barely, but it's something that I've been thinking about all week. I wanted to f- get some good, you know, meaty statistics and just information to pass along and the psychological effects and, and how they can affect both positively and negatively a portfolio. So we would like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. Again, if you'd like to give us a call on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. For my father, John, my brother, Jeff, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend into your financial health. We'll talk to you next week.